I'm Kevin Maney, and I really enjoyed being on the Creators Code podcast. Ganas made me think about some deep questions that I, I hadn't really thought through before, which leads to some answers that I think will be interesting to others, I hope. And it was really interesting for me to talk about. Today, we've got a very special guest. He's a distinguished author whose book, Play Bigger, has become a beacon for entrepreneurs and innovators worldwide. A co-founder of Category Design Advisors, his insights have helped businesses carve out their own unique space in the market. His writings as a contributing editor at Newsweek and at the columnist for the USA Today have consistently provided valuable perspective on the intersection of technology and business. Please join me and we give a warm welcome to the remarkable Kevin Manny. Hi, Kevin. Glad to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. So, we met when I first saw you speak at the Eden Base event. Big shout out to Eden Base for making all these great events happen. And I would like to start by sharing a bit about your journey in the tech and business world and, and what got you to this stage today. Well, I guess in a sort of origin story, I graduated from college. I had wanted to work at newspapers. I'd been internships at newspapers, but could not yet get a job at a newspaper. And my a friend of mine had a father who ran a department at, a, at General Electric that was in the town. I grew up in Binghamton, New York, that made computers for fighter jets for the Air Force. And knew I was looking for something, hired me to actually be a technical writer. And I'd never done anything like this before, but, it, but it, the job was to go in and talk to the engineers about how these things worked and to write manuals so that some 18-year-old on a flight deck could understand how to you know fix these computers and i'd never done anything like that but i actually found the atmosphere really fascinating and really enjoyed doing stuff like that so i don't know six nine months later a job opened up at the binghamton newspaper for a business reporter and i'd never thought about doing anything like that but i i thought at that point i really had you know liked what i was doing and i i took that position and started writing primarily about the biggest business in town, which was IBM. So that got me into writing about technology right at this moment in time when the personal computer started to become a thing that people were interested in. Because before that, when, when, when computers were basically these mainframes that sat in back rooms somewhere, the public didn't really like have that much interest in reading about technology. But I just, I kind of hit the right moment at the right time and rode that wave as, as interest in that first computing and then the internet uh, you know, just kept rolling along all these years and that landed me at bigger and bigger newspapers, eventually a Condé Nast writing for magazines, started writing books and it just kind of all kept snowballing and I've now written about the tech industry for you know 30 some years and interviewed like everybody you could probably name and, and been inside all these you know, cool companies. It's been an amazing journey. No, that's absolutely amazing. And I'm sure you've put all of that experience into your book, Play Bigger. One question, how, how was it dealing with fighter jets? <laughs> well, I didn't actually get to ride in a fighter jet or anything like that. I was in some factory where they were just making the computers that would somehow go and plug into these things someday. But right. but it was but it was amazing, like just to, to learn about how these things worked was was a, very cool. No, it was indeed. I could imagine. <laughs> So what inspired you to to write the book Play Bigger and how do you feel it's influenced entrepreneurs and innovators in the industry? Well, those are two different big questions I'll try to answer. Sure. <laughs> so how how it came to be was, you know, I'd been again, I'd been in and around the tech industry for so long and and uh, there were these guys that I was particular Al Ramadan and then Christopher Lockhead who I had run into previously in journalism and and they had been CEOs and company founders and and chief marketing officers and all that kind of stuff and investors and and I and at one point I get a call from these guys and also with their other partner Dave Peterson and they had they had started doing advising startups and their basic idea in advising startups centered on the idea that in most digital markets there's a winner take all situation in, in most market categories. One company takes 70, 80% of the economics out of the category and everybody else is left to be, you know, struggle for, struggle for like market share. And so if that insight is correct, then a couple of things come up. One is like, well, if you're a company leader, 
why would you not want to be the one who wins a market category if that's where all the money is, essentially, where that's where all the success is and all the influence and who talent wants to work for? And so then if that's the case, then how would you reverse engineer how companies create and then eventually win new market categories? And they had a bunch of disparate ideas about about this, and but as someone who by that point had been writing about the tech industry for so long, I kind of knew that they were on the right track. There were a lot of interesting things to explore there. And we, you know, we all had dinner one night in San Francisco and kind of talked about, well, you know, maybe there's, it's worth like looking into, is there a book there? I didn't even know there was a book there at that point in time. But the more we talked and the more we did some research, the more it came together. And the process, the process of actually working on the book with these guys, which is actually one of some of the most fun I ever had in my writing life because they were, anybody who's read the book, especially the introduction, understands how nutty that whole atmosphere was and how it resulted in this book. And, and, and we just started piece by piece out of putting this together, this, you got reverse engineering and then creating a, a step-by-step methodology for discovering, seeing, putting definition around, and eventually rolling out and, and, and winning a new market category. And so, you know, the book came out, I'd written four books before that and, you know, another four after that. But to my surprise of all the books I've ever been a part of, this thing exploded and VCs and and company leaders started picking it up and reading it and then calling and saying, please help us do what you wrote about. And I, I mean, I had no intention or never, no thought of being a, you know, an advisor, a consultant kind of, you know, person. I, I was already I was already signed up to write another book by that point and was working on it when this stuff started happening. But it, it essentially sucked me in and and started to form this other firm called Category Design Advisors with a couple other guys. And and just I mean it's been amazing. I mean we've worked with forty some companies since then, helping them with this process called category design and helping them focus and define their strategies and 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 for the most part, the companies we've worked with have been extremely grateful and and found that it really helped them. So it's been you know a really fun thing to do. Can you share some of the the companies that you've worked with and some of some of the the, the larger names that the audience can relate to, just just to give a perspective? Well, probably. So a lot of a whole lot of the companies we've worked with are companies we will probably hear about in the next few free five years because they they were very early stage right coming up starting to get excitement and and are still carrying out their category strategies but it probably one that is easiest to recognize so LinkedIn you know which is a now owned by Microsoft but giant company in its own right and inside of LinkedIn there's a, a bunch of different divisions and there's one business unit called LinkedIn sales solutions anybody who's listening to this who's in sales at all probably usually uses LinkedIn sales navigator and so LinkedIn Sales Solutions, like a billion dollar business inside of LinkedIn. And they've been around for about 10 years. And this is, goes back to the last summer. They've been around for about 10 years and had gotten a little bit, you know, sort of stale is too strong a word, but kind of stuck in where they go next. And they had a bunch of competitors that they were worried about and, and, uh, and a lot of different ideas, but not really alignment around where to take this thing from here. And one of the things that our, 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 our work is really good. So we get a whole, you know, the whole leadership team. In this case, it was like 12, 14 people into a conference room. And we lead this like whole, you know, two days of whole, these whole long workshops of, of really discussing, first of all, what the, you know, how, how the world has changed for the people that, that they, they want to serve. In this case, the sales profession. And, and, and because of the world changing that way, how has their 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 challenges, what's missing in the world that 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 those that that profession now needs that's not there, and and then what kinds of innovations could address that missing? You start putting all these pieces together, and 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 seeing that that the technology that the sales profession has been using for these last number of years has constantly made the sort of the sales profession feel more and more robotic. It's more and more about like pumping out as many you know contacts as possible and getting less and less response. When what salespeople really want is a lot of deep information about the kinds of people that they want to address so that they can make selling more personal and, and more relevant to the people that they're trying to call on so that it's not annoying, it's actually like a helpful thing. And, 
And we realized that LinkedIn, because of the kinds of data that it has about real individuals and their, and their job activities, was the one place that had all of that kind of data that could help make that possible. And we came up with this, this category name called Deep Sales and, and put some you know, real definition around what that means and what the innovations that LinkedIn could bring to that to create that kind of a, a, a category. And, and I think anybody that's worked at, that, at LinkedIn sales solutions would tell you that this re-energized the whole division, gave them a, a, a cohesive way to talk about what they were doing that spread across the whole organization. And, and from what I've heard over the past year, it was the best, it turned out to be the best, actually having been a laggard in performance for the last several years, turned it around and became the best performing division inside of LinkedIn over the past year, even with the economic downturn. And I mean, we're working with them continually to try to, you know, c- to build that category and, and for, you know, the new generation. And, and so that's been, you know, that's been an example of, of an enormous success of category design and what it can do for a company that feels a little maybe stalled after it's been around for a while. I mean, what was going through your mind? So you, you, you know, you wrote this book and then you're starting to work with companies like LinkedIn and, you know, those tech giants. How, what were the thoughts going through your mind and how were you feeling at the time when, you know, you, you got the news or you secured the deal? Well, you know, I have to tell you that as, you know, as a, as a writer, right? And that's, you know, I've always been my primary profession. I, you know, write things and they go out there and then, you know, I go on to the next thing. And the, the big, the most amazing thing to me was when we actually started working with companies and applying what we wrote about to have, to have this feeling of, oh my God, it works. <laughs> you know, like I never get to actually apply the things that I write to the real world. So, you know, usually somebody else, you know, goes out and does that. And I, here I am sitting in the room and going like, oh my God, when we go through this, like people actually get it and like feel like that, you know, it, it, it really makes a difference in their, in their lives. And, their, and so that's the most amazing thing. And even like things we don't touch, I get, you know, emails or contacts through LinkedIn or stuff like that of uh, people that literally say, I, you know, like I read that book and it completely changed my, you know, attitude about business or changed my, you know, changed my life. I mean, I, I've never had a response like that to anything that I've I've written before, and that's been the most amazing thing of all. And and it's it's just profoundly satisfying because it's it's helpful. Like actually know that I improved people's lives or improved the company's prospects is just the most amazing feeling ever. So it's that human element to it, right? So when you see people putting what you've done into practice and, and you know, it augmenting whatever they're doing, it's, it's kind of that doing something greater than yourself feeling, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's, and, and that's why too, the, 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 the way that we were being in person in that room with the you know, leadership team around us and like driving toward, you know, a, a, a uh, you know, a solution and a place for them together and actually feeling like that feeling when everybody gets on board and says like, that's it. Like, oh, they, this is what we got to do. You know, everybody's like energized and everything and, and be, being actually to, able to be in the room live when all that stuff is happening is just so much better than, you know, for instance, like doing something and then hoping that it works out sometime later when the other, when the company does it or whatever. It's just, it's just, it's it's amazing. It's like, I often say it's like I, I've I've played sports all my life, and it's it's like the feeling you get when you play in a big sports match. No, that's great to hear. I mean, can you share some insights about the process of helping the businesses create and dominate new categories? So we it, it, in the book, it basically starts with with some techniques to try to see a new market category, you know that, and and then moves into how to define it, put words around it. So. Let me step back a second. So, think of categories as a space in people's minds, and and if that space doesn't exist, then then your product really has nowhere to go, right? So, you, there's a lot of companies, tech companies, especially by technical founders, they build this really cool product, and and then they're looking for what they you know call product market fit, right? Which basically means I've got this cool product, and I'm trying to put it find a market where it fits and where it makes has some relevance. 
which actually seems to me in the category design sort of mentality backwards, that what you really are looking for is market product fit, which means that you first have to create the category, the, mar the market or a category in people's minds so that it opens up a space for the product that you want to build to go into. And you want to make the product relevant to that space. So like, here's a quick example. If you were going to have a conversation with your family about cars to buy 20 years ago, there was no space in anybody's head for the most part about an electric car. The conversation you would be have would be, what kind of car do we want to buy? It's, and they're all gas-powered cars, and that's, what, that's the only conversation you would have. If you're going to have that conversation today, a lot of families are going to be, oh, should we buy an electric car or a gas-powered car? Because over the past 20 years, this new category, or past 10 years really probably, this new category has opened up in people's minds of electric car. And in fact, the fact that that category exists not only has allows Tesla to have make products that can fit into that category and solve that category for people, but now it's opened up that space so everybody else, Ford, Volkswagen, you know, all these other companies can build products to go to that, that into that category. So our, our work with companies is how do you first not only see what's missing in the world, what needs to, what, you know, needs to exist that doesn't exist yet. But the fact is that if it needs to exist, it doesn't exist yet, that space in people's minds probably isn't there yet. So the first task actually is to market the category, is to, is to put out whatever it is, thought leadership, education, these kinds of things to make people aware that they need this thing. Sometimes it's actually describing the problem that people have that they don't quite yet realize is a problem or can't, don't realize there's a new way to solve that problem. And that starts to open up this space in people's minds so that you can build a product to solve it. Well, it also turns out that when you look at, by the way, I have, I, before Play Bigger, I happened to write this other book called Two Second Advantage, which got deep into brain, brain science and what computer scientists were learning from neuroscientists about how to build AIs. And so that put me in touch with the whole world of neuroscientists. And we started to realize that if you look at neuroscience, what ends up happening with our, the way cognitive biases work and help you know, and drive our decision-making is that when somebody first described a problem to you in a way that you recognize and feel like, oh, that person really understands what, I, what I'm looking for, that becomes a very powerful bias in your mind that you think, well, well, if that person really understands my problem, they probably understand how to solve it. And I'm gonna give them sort of the benefit of the doubt in this category that they are the best ones suited to solve my problem. So if you do a really great job of opening that space in people's minds, describing the problem back to them so they feel like you really understand it, and describing then how to solve that problem, then you win a, you win a, you kind of win the cognitive bias. And 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 you'll see this in technology all the time, right? The, there's there's many different instances where the best product is not the best seller. But it's because some company created that bias in people's minds. So everybody believes that that's the best thing. And even if others come along afterwards and say we're 10% faster or 20% cheaper or whatever else, it would be really hard to break through that cognitive bias. And that's why, I mean, you know, like an old story, right? That's why like Microsoft comes out with, you know, Bing 10, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, after Google has already established that bias in our heads. And Microsoft spent something like, you know, a billion dollars trying to convince us with advertising and marketing that Bing was a better search engine than Google, which technically it was. And nobody cared because the bias had been so implanted in our heads. And, and then smart companies like you know Google then end up building on that bias by building more and more products around it and extending the category, right? But that's the power of, of category creation. So one of the things we go in with companies, we, we've realized this is actually since the book came out and all the work we've done with companies, that there's a simple way to think about it to start or to start your thinking about that, that whole process. And we, there's kind of an equation. So we say like, okay, you're looking for a, a way to define a new market category. Well, the first thing you do is it, the, the equation is context plus missing plus innovation. So context is what's happening in the world around the kinds of people you want to address. That might be how technology is changing, but it also might be things like how society is changing or, you know, 
geopolitics. I mean, the war in Europe ends up disrupting supply chains and the economy changes and all these. These are all changes in context. How do the change in context affect the kinds of people that you're addressing, the customers you want to address? If you understand that, it can define that. Then you can define what's missing, what's what needs to be created to help change some pro- fix some problem that's arisen because of that context. And if you can describe that context and describe that missing, then you've won that part about you know making people feel like you know you understand what they need, and and then describe the innovation that solves that problem in this new context. If you can do those three pieces, you've come a long way towards seeing what your strategy should be about creating a new category and finding and and seeing a way to define and win that market category ahead of anyone else. I remember you. Thank you very much for that. I remember you gave an example with Apple and the iPhone, right? So before the iPhone, there was no there was no category for that. And Steve Jobs came out with the iPhone, set the category, and now every other company, when they're releasing products, they're using that as a base to try to beat what Apple has done, right? But they've just been... That's right. I mean, that's what happened with Android, and that's what happened with... You also gave the example of BlackBerry. Could you could you touch upon that because I found that very interesting when you when you yeah yeah well so it as it turns so there's there was an economist named Paul Goroski who an American who ended up doing most of his work in the UK at, at Cambridge I think Oxford or Cambridge and and at one point he decided he wanted to understand how market categories work and evolve over time so he assembled data and and he ended up writing this book called the evolution of new markets. And he put together this very simple model. Of course, you know, I mean, it's it's a it's a sort of distillation of like how categories work, but it basically seems to ring true in, in most market categories. And so, one of the things that he points out is that, well, what I just described before, you know, previous to this here with you, was seeing seeing a new market category and creating it and trying to define it so you win it over time. Not every company that creates that market category in the first place ends up winning it because, and which kind of gives a lie to that sort of first mover advantage thing that used to be, you know, a big thing in technology circles. But what happens is when a new category is created, if it really matters, if it's one that, you know, people, everybody else sees like that's really going to be something over time, then yeah, one company may create that in the beginning, but then a whole bunch of other companies start jumping in and saying, we're going to do that too. And as they jump in, they probably all try different versions of what that category is going to look like. So going back to the 1990s, so the, or 1980s, I guess, companies started to see that, that this idea of connecting a phone to the, you know, to the internet or email or this kind of thing was going to be a thing. So over time, all these other companies jumped in, Nokia and BlackBerry and, and Motorola and all these others, all with different designs, all with like five, six different operating systems. You know, and some had little keyboards on them and some flip phones that opened up. And BlackBerry was one of those, right? So BlackBerry came in and had this very different model of email and little keyboard on it and, and business people loved it. But it still was a fairly narrow slice of society that was using it. It was mostly business people. And so over time, all these designs started to com- compete for the, for the category. Well, Karaski realizes that there's this point in time when the mass market decides that there is what he calls a dominant design of that category and 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 it's the it's the version of that category that everybody realizes like this is this is the way it should work yes we're going to settle on this so what happened in the in the category of smartphones which was i thought was very fascinating right was it so all these companies came all these different designs battling it out over a number of years at the same time, there's still pretty much only early adopters are using smartphones. And so the market category is not really like taking off. And and then in 2007, Apple comes on, Steve Jobs get on stage, gets on stage and he introduces the iPhone. Radically different version of what this is like than anybody else. The keyboard on the screen, the app store behind it. And, and what happened was like basically with, over the next year or so, Everybody decided, you know what? That's what a smartphone is. That's what it should be like. We trust Apple's going to bring this to market. This whole thing makes sense. And very quickly after that, because when the dominant design appears, everybody who's not on board with the dominant design basically falls away. 
So that's why you know BlackBerry and Nokia and all these others that had all these different operating systems and ways types of phones, they all started to disappear. Because if you're not on board with the dominant design, you're kind of dead in the water. And 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 then as more new new like Samsungs and others start coming into the market, even though you know yes they're using you know different operating system with Android, a competing operating system, but even Android basically looks like an iPhone, and every Samsung phone or what you know everybody else's phones, these LG or whatever, they all look like an iPhone because the dominant design won. And 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 once the dominant design gets chosen, then the rest of the market gets comfortable with that product and the value of the market takes off and the number of competitors falls away. And so, you know, and, and, and as a point of view, different analysts have tried to get at this in a number of different ways. But if you look at the research, the analysts will say that like anywhere between 80 and 95% of the total profits of the smartphone industry go to Apple. Because Apple won the dominant design. That's the power of winning the dominant design. So, if you're a if you're a company trying to win a market category, there are two points in time that are super important. One is, yes, you're at an advantage if you can create the market category in the first place and define the rules because you have a better chance of instituting yourself as that cognitive bias in people's minds. But you have to be aware that over time, a number of competitive competing designs are coming going to come into the market, and if you and and then your goal becomes. The ultimate goal becomes you have to win the dominant design. And that can be five, six, 10 years into the into the category being created. But if your eye ever leaves that prize, you may lose the dominant design to somewhere else when that, when that moment comes along. And that's what's all important. So you have to really be willing to grind at this category year after year after year to establish your position and make sure that you win the dominant design. Certainly, it is continuous, and and you have to make sure that the direction you're going in is is correct, because just like some you know founders or some companies can have their own vision, sometimes what they think they're building or the category they think they're carving out, it also works in the opposite way, right? In terms of is that category actually needed? So going back to the formula that that you first referred to, I think is a key to to all of this being a success as well. So. Yes, and, and if I can make one point sure. about that, so that, that one of the signals. So if you if you think you see a new market category and you define it really well, and you can go to market, you know, start going out to the market with it. And again, going back to Paul Borowski's research, the signal that you get that the category matters and actually is something is when you see others coming into the category, even if they have different designs on, on how it's going to work. But you know, it's that old saying that you know, you know, you know, some companies like don't work, want no competitors, right? To ever come, all, well, that's the wrong way to look at it. Actually, competitors validate the category, and if you don't see competitors coming in, you've probably identified a category that doesn't really matter that much. So you know, that's 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 a different way of thinking about it for companies. No, no, it is definitely, and you know, moving on from the early days of BlackBerry to the iPhones. Now we're moving into an era with AI and quantum computing. How do you see that influencing or shaping the future of category design? Oh, uh, well, well, shaping the future of category design. Well, well um, actually, the, sorry, the, the, there's twofold question. A is the influencing category design, and the B is entrepreneurship and business. Well, I, I, I think maybe the answer to both questions is go, going back to that formula that we talked about. So. One thing that's true is that the greater the change in context, the more opportunity there is for new categories to, to appear. So, you know, you know, again, that can be doesn't have to be technology. It could be, you know, war or an economic calamity or you know a different complete change in societal attitudes or something like that. But in this case, right at this moment, with as you know, generative AI is kind of, you know exploding into our lives. That is an enormous change in context in the technology sphere. And so anytime that there's an enormous change in context, if you start looking around, you realize that there are there are the there are new ways of solving old problems that never existed before. And in fact that technology is going to create new new problems to solve. And those problems are all market category opportunities, right? So that's what I want to encourage companies to do is understand how that contextual change is impacting the audience they want to address 
and see what new problems are, are arising. So like, I mean, you know, you know, super simple kinds of things here that have already happened with, with generative AI. So generative AI comes along and helps, you know, students write essays and, you know, things like that. Right. And, and so that creates a whole new problem for, you know, academics that, that now they need a new kind of product that can detect whether somebody's written an essay in generative AI or if they've written it as, you know, by themselves. So like the appearance of the technology actually created a new problem to solve, which offers a new opportunity for somebody else to create a new product. At the same time, so here's a, a, a company I spoke with recently, a, a fairly new company called Hippocratic AI. And so Hippocratic AI looks at a, a problem that's been plaguing the healthcare industry for years and years now, which is nursing shortage. And in fact, that since COVID, the nursing shortage in the U.S. is extremely acute. There's something like 200,000, 300,000 nursing positions open across the country. And, 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 you know, and, and training nurses and, and is, you know, and getting new ones in is extremely expensive and time consuming. And how do we solve this? And well, so generative AI comes along and, and, and these guys realize that if you, if you deeply train generative AI on, on medical knowledge and nursing and, you know, and also be, be, have it be able to ingest the medical data about it per some per individual, you can create, you're not going to replace nurses. I mean, nurses have a physical presence and they, they can do things like, you know, draw blood or give you a shot or, you know, take your temperature, things that an AI can never do. But being able to take the burden off of nurses of some of the things that like taking a phone call or offering advice or helping follow up with a patient about whether they're taking their medication, that, that generative AI could start to do that and, and essentially give every person, especially like say you have a chronic disease where you constantly have maybe questions or things or something, a disease to manage, it, now you can essentially have a sort of a pre-nurse in your pocket at all times and then, you know, when things get serious and you have to go, you know, get actual medical care, then you have the, you know, the, the human nurses there. So being able to use this new technology that arises, this new context to solve an old problem that never could be solved before is another way of looking at how to, you know, how these things can change, you know, can change the business. And so that's the way I would encourage all, you know, anybody's, you know, entrepreneurial to think about what's going on right now. 100%. I mean, how would you distinguish, with, with the companies that you work with, you name one of them, but how do you distinguish the company's USP and also how they will survive in the category that's being created? I'll give you an example. Now with AI, you have ChatGPT and ChatGPT's API, which you can connect to and, and set all these different parameters and make lots of different agents. However, let's say this nursing application so there is something similar, let's say, in the mental health field in the G one of the GCC countries that they raised the money for. But when I'm taking a step back and looking at the whole industry right now, it's, it's very much like a gold rush, right? Where on one hand, the companies who launch first have the greatest chance of survival and gaining investment because AI is the new buzzword. However, on the other side, for me to replicate that with no-code tools using, you know, Bubble and maybe Made and ChatGPT would be able to create something similar. So how do you make that, that distinction and differentiation and even advise those companies on how they should protect what they're doing when they're creating new categories? Well, so one, you know, one thing that's been, been certain as time has gone on, even over, over these last 10 years, is that the, the speed of, you know, that of that Karaski curve that that happens in, in category is is keeps accelerating. So you know where like for instance we talked about the iPhone example. This was that was like something that happened over twenty years. You know from the time of first the iPhone coming out. You know with in the, in some of these fields the categories that are going to be created with using generative AI. You know that's being squeezed down to you know shorter and shorter time period. However. The, 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 having been, you know, in this tech, in this sector, technology sector for so long and seen a lot of things, the, 
you know, the, I think back to the early days of the consumer internet, the mid 1990s, when there was this explosion, everybody was rushing into this thing. Everybody believed it was going to change everything. You know, they're talking about the pace of change being, you know, so much faster than ever before. And there was, you know, the same, this gold rush, right? You know, pumping all this money into, into all, and, and a lot of stuff that was created then turned out to be stuff that didn't really work yet or wasn't really, you know, solving a real problem. And so while well, there, there were the gold rush years, all of a sudden there was this crash right in 2000, when, when, which wiped out a lot of the early companies. And, and, and then a few years later, we started to see the Facebooks, the Googles, the, 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 the companies that really could act, actually like made use of the internet and, and make, made a part of our lives started to appear and those are the ones that are, you know, for the most part, are really the powerhouses today. I am reasonably sure we're going to see the same thing happen in this generative AI field. It's way too early to declare anybody a category winner. It takes more time than that for categories to emerge, sink into our brains. Now, the people that are deep in the technology in industry often don't see it that way because they're so, you know, their, their peers are all working on this. They feel the pressure and all this kind of stuff. But if you look upwards to the general public, people are still trying to figure this out. And those, those, you know, th those spaces in our minds haven't really solidified or opened up. So, yeah, I think we're going to see this big gold rush for a while. I, and I would bet you anything there's going to be a crash when a lot of the stuff's going to you know, disappear that, that didn't really matter. And then we're, then we're going to be able to see what really is going to work. And, then, and the companies that arise are going to really change our lives. But I think we've got a few years to go through this cycle. I see. So it's like, you know, if, if you don't really have, if you don't really have a solid product, you will be faded out by people who know what they're doing, have used your formula, who have identified the real market and who are building something that will stand the test of time. Yeah. I mean, more than like it. Yes. And, you know, I mean, there's, and there's always the, the other outliers too. I mean, look, you know, Jeff Bezos started Amazon in 1994, and and, and he rode through. I mean, if you remember in the in the in the dot com crash, Amazon stock went from God knows what it was 250 dollars a share down to like 12 or something like that. But Bezos was a brilliant enough business person, and and knew, you know that he he managed to manage his way through that and you know get out the other side and establish Amazon as the you know as the down at design and retail on the internet. And so there, there, there certainly will be early companies that manage to go, go through that transition. But I would be willing to bet that the, the really the defining companies of the generative AI era are yet to be built and probably will be built after we see kind of a hype cycle disappear. No, indeed. And, uh, you know, moving on, you know, throwing a spin bowl from Amazon, if, if there was any industry that you could disrupt with a groundbreaking innovation, what would it be? <laughs> I have maybe a different answer to that, which is I, ever since we wrote Play Bigger and and then in subsequent books, I've written three books since then with with Hamad Taneja, who's the CEO of General Catalyst, one of the you know, biggest VCs in Silicon Valley. And a, a lot of, a, lot, a theme throughout those couple of things is, is disrupting disruption. We believe since play bigger, but also with you know the work with Hamont that that disruption is not the right the right word or the right way to think about things. It it actually has turned out to be something that is like throwing a grenade into you know the market and saying like you know good luck. Let's here here's our technology. We're going to throw it and blow things up, and we'll see what happens. And and that has often led to you know it, you know like things like with Uber battles with cities and. With you know the with you know, taxi drivers and, and and you know lost jobs and, and problems in society and Facebook you know creating havoc with you know fake news and all the kind of stuff that's happened there without taking on the responsibility of of making sure that innovation is actually something that that improves our lives and improves society and and Hema is very actually very big on this concept he calls radical collaboration which is a different way of looking at it which is about basically taking technology. And, and and using some having some empathy with the industry that you're taking it into, 
and and helping the industry itself change from the inside out in a positive way rather than blowing things up and hoping it turns out okay. And so, yes, I mean, if to answer your question more directly, there's no industry that needs that kind of change more than healthcare in the U.S. Uh, probably around the world too, but you know, the healthcare sector in the U.S. is particularly frustrating and costly and messed up because of the way it's structured. And and there seems to be ways. I was talking about Hippocratic AI earlier, and there's a lot of companies that are you know, appearing that that can use technology and AI to radically change the way healthcare works and the experience of healthcare and the cost of healthcare. And and while the tech industry has thrown company after company at healthcare for the last 20 years, most of it hasn't made a dent because they've all come from the outside trying to make their way in and disrupt something. But the new approach is let's get inside the industry, bring these bring these technologies and these capabilities into the people who are the incumbents and the, who who by the way all know they need to change. There's nobody, there's no doctor in any hospital that doesn't think the healthcare system is completely screwed up in the US. They know and want to change, but they don't have a way to. So if the technology companies can come in and offer them a way to make these changes and and transform the industry, that's going to have more impact than any company coming in from the outside and say, we're going to try to blow this thing up. So that's that's where I believe things are heading in this, you know, in this new generation of tech companies. Look. Look to look for radical collaboration as a way to. And by the way, and this is I, I would go back to you know look look at what Tesla did. So so Tesla comes in, and yes, you might think that from the outside you look at what you know Tesla coming in with an electric car and this is a disruptive technology that's going to blow up part the auto industry. Well, it was never going to blow apart the auto industry because the auto industry is too enormous. But what Elon Musk's goal was, at least at one point, I don't know he's little nutty and who knows what he is doing now or thinking now but at one point with Tesla his goal was to turn you know basically make everybody drive an electric car and fairly early on after Tesla patented a bunch of things about the electric cars it basically made it open sourced its patents with a message of our goal is to allow electric cars to flourish no matter whether we make it or anybody else makes it it was an act of radical collaboration and, and in fact, his goal was to get the GMs and the Fords and the Toyotas and everybody else to start creating electric cars because he believed that's the way the world needed to go. And so that's the kind of attitude that's really going to make a difference, much more than like in throwing a bomb at an industry. I mean, touching on Elon Musk, I personally think he is deep down a genius in his own right. <laughs> he mentioned something about entrepreneurship. It's like and having a technology company is like eating glass every single day. <laughs> which I could kind of relate to. How would you, A, describe, I mean, what are your thoughts on Elon and what he's do done, especially to his industry or the industries that he's had his fingers in? And how do you think that shapes other companies coming into the space wanting to create or, or to create their own categories around what he's led and pioneered, whether you agree with everything that he says or does or not? Just to work backwards for a second, I, I just I just don't get I, I don't I don't get the whole Twitter thing at all from Elon. It doesn't it doesn't fit with it, it doesn't fit with any it seeming to me like I'm on that side of that I don't know all or anything fit with anything else. But the but the thing about sorry when you said Twitter Elon Musk, was that was that the name change to X or you mean just him yeah X, or or him taking over why why would you do this like why would you do this I you know I don't know. But but it's two it's two big efforts, right? Tesla and SpaceX. You know what I admire about both of those was that he did those with a with a purpose that was far beyond like I'm going to build a business. You know, Tesla he started Tesla because he believed the world needed to go to get away from carbon and and stop burning fossil fuels. So Tesla was all about how do you not only make electric cars, but use electric and battery technology to power everything, right? So you know Tesla batteries and you know and battery technology has been as big a part of, as big a part of Tesla as electric as the cars themselves, and he wanted to influence the industry and influence the world about electricity and batteries and everything, move us off of carbon. That so, and then you look at SpaceX, and even though it was a bit of a maybe you know bizarre idea, but his purpose for starting SpaceX was 
at some point we might need to get off this planet and we need, you know, we need rockets and capability to, that can take us to someplace else. And, 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 you know, and, and in the meantime, he starts building, you know, rockets for commercial reasons and ends up using it to build Starlink, by the way, which is sort of this unappreciate, underappreciated business that, that Musk built on the back of SpaceX, which is enormously powerful. You know, it's these, the satellite system that covers the entire earth. And, you know, there's a story recently about how Ukraine is basically running its war off of, you know, off of connections to Starlink. And uh, so, and, you know, and what I admire about Musk is that in both cases, he started a company with a bigger purpose than I'm going to, you know, start a company to build a business and make money. And by following that purpose and being so true to it is what led him to build these, these enormously successful and enormously valuable companies. And, and and so that it does lead back to some of the category design things. When we're sitting around with a company, that's something we'll drill you know drill in on is like that you have to have a real and it goes back to your comment about eating glass, right? As an entrepreneur, to really be successful, you have to feel this in your soul. the 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 business you're starting has to be part of your soul, because if it's part of your soul. Then you can eat glass all day, and 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 you're going to be like, okay, I'm going to eat glass until I fin- you know, until I don't have to anymore because it's in my soul that I have to do this. If it's not in your soul, at some point you're going to say this hurts too much, and I'm getting the hell out of it, right? And and even going back to the work with Haymon is that that's I know that's one of the things, one of the first things he looks for. Some founder comes into his office looking for an investment, and one of the first things he wants to he's going to explore is that. You know, clo- close your your deck that you came in on your laptop to present me with. I just want to hear the story of why you started this company because I want to find out if your soul is in it, and that's the first thing he wants to know. So, you know, uh, again, I would think that that's that that's the key to success in 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 this you know very difficult world of entrepreneurship. No, indeed, definitely. I mean. Yeah, I, I think Elon taking over Twitter was, you know, controlling the media and, you know, exposing everything that was going on because of an, an injustice. But however, I'm not sure what to think about the change to X as a thing. <laughs> uh, you know, what is, you know, tweeting seemed quite nice. Now it's Xing. Yeah, yeah. And now it's Xing. <laughs> oh, well, we'll see how that turns out in, in the category that he's creating anyway. And now moving on, can you share a bit about any upcoming projects or plans you have in the pipeline? Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, work. There's two. I mean, basically, my my work proceeds on two fronts. One is in category design work, and one is in writing, which I still do. And so, in category design, yeah, we you know we continue to look. I mean, we we're aware that the context around the the companies we work keeps changing. The economy has changed and, and affected things. The appearance of radical new technologies like generative AI. So we've kind of, we've, we've constantly worked on adjusting and changing the kinds of ways we do things and the products we offer to companies. And, uh, and so we, you know, we're trying to solve the problems of the, the companies that come to us in new ways. So that's been one, you know, one sort of effort. And then on the writing front, I'm actually writing a, a fourth book with, with Haymont or collaborating on this one about the uh, the seven or what is it nine, nine nine principles of impact investing, and we've distilled down you know these these nine principles that that you know that we believe everybody should think about as they try to create companies that have an impact on the world. And 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 by the way, principle number one what is the company must have a soul. That is principle number one. No, that's very exciting. It's exciting times to be honest with you. And uh, in terms of when you step into a business, it's like, I'll use Facebook advertisers as an example, because they're very clever. They're technically the money taps. So they walk into a business and say, hey, this is what you're doing. This is how I can improve or get customers through the door at this specific price. However, once you reach a certain target, I want a percentage of whatever is generated, or you know, they offer different incentives for the companies. I mean, are, are you... Are you exposed to that side of it as well? So, you know, do you have a vested interest in the companies that you work with? Obviously not all of them, but at least opportunities for startups, which makes it worth your time and obviously the startups as well. Well, yeah, so an important part of the way we work 
is that we we want to have our our payment be in both cash and equity. And and the reason we do that is well, first of all, we, we want to be investors in the companies that we work with. In fact, we want to work with companies we want to be investors in, essentially. And so we have a lot of you know we have a lot of companies come to us, and uh, and and we'll be choosy about who we work with because we're we are in fact going to take a good chunk of our fee in equity. And then if we do that, what we tell the company is like, okay, so now our, you know our future is your future, and if you know we're not going to charge you anything else if six months or two years or six years from now you you know you need help from us you want to you know redo your category thinking or you you just want us to look at something or or come in and you know and teach a new generation of leadership about category design whatever you need because now we're part of your team we, we're invested in the company and so that's been i mean that's been a really interesting thing for us to do because at the same time as yes we we need the cash to sort of keep our lights on but the, the the equity is really what we work for because we want to build help build companies that turn into something great, and then you know, it, you know, in, it increase our livelihoods. No, indeed. Thank you for that. And one last question I love to ask every guest that comes onto the podcast is: if you were to give your last thirty seconds speech to the world, what would it be? <laughs> my God, my last thirty seconds speech to the world. I believe that that everything that that I've worked on and done, I've I've done with a purpose. Uh, I've never chased money, and I, I've done the things that I both love to do and things that I I believe help other people. And and by doing that, the the you know the success or whatever has come. And every time I've ever made a decision that was based on chasing money itself, it's always turned out badly. So, you know, I, I say this to, you know, my kids, I say this to anybody I might mentor is that, again, you know, do what's in your soul, do what you really love to do, and, and that you have a purpose for doing, and, and the good things will come from that rather than the other way around. That's very humbling, very genuine, and yeah, very thought-provoking as well, especially when you're looking at the way society is living nowadays and the narratives that are being pushed as well. But, but Kevin, I'd like to thank you for joining us on the Creators Code podcast. It was an absolute pleasure hosting you. Well, thanks for having me, Anna. And I really appreciate it. Great, great conversation. Definitely. And good luck. Good luck with future ones. That's great. And we'll definitely, this is one of many. And before you do release your next book, I would love to have you on again. And we'll, we'll do a, a deep, depth, in-depth dive in that as well. Anytime. Have to. That's brilliant. Thank you, Kevin.